Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. everyone welcome back to podside picnic my indefatigable co-host pete is here with me once again howdy and we're also joined hey pete <laughs> we're also joined by i know i say that we, all of our guests are very special guests this one's an extra super very special guest uh he is a science fiction writer of renown an activist a podcaster an all-around man of online welcome cory doctorow hi how are you uh fellow humans um honestly we're really thrilled to have you on here uh thank you for so many reasons i mean we could talk about the nice thing about you as a guest is we could talk about all kinds of things that are not science fiction but uh given that this is a sci-fi podcast i think we're probably most interested in your most recent book okay okay (laughs) well uh how about i start and I'll, i'll start general and you get more specific connor and i'm saying the sorts of things you would say before the podcast so i'll just get with it um so, Corey, your work is unusual in that you you really take a look at, like, bad trends, things that are going on that are ominous. You extrapolate them, but then somehow you pull hope out of it. Like, I don't, I don't look at your works as anything but optimistic, even in the, in the darkest of times. So could you talk a little bit about that path? Do you, is it just better storytelling for you, or is that, is that really your attitude in the face of trouble? Well, let me start by talking about where I think bad technology comes from and, and what, especially in this new book in, in Radicalized, I try to surface. I have a thing. I, I don't know. Am I allowed to swear on your podcast? Oh, hell yes. Okay. Please so do. I have a thing I call the shitty technology adoption curve. And and the way that that works is if you have like a genuinely bad piece of technology that you want to impose on people, it doesn't behoove you to start with powerful people because they get really angry Uh, And then when they're angry, people listen to them because they have a lot of social power. So what you want to do is you want to find someone with no social power and inflict your technology on them and then kind of work your way up the privilege gradient and kind of knock the the rough edges off of your technology and also normalize it. So you start with like refugees and prisoners and mental patients, racialized people, then kids then uh, parolees, then blue collar workers and then white collar workers. And then, you know, before you know it, everyone's doing it. So, you know, a a good example of that is uh, um, what it would mean to have a closed circuit camera watching you while you eat dinner. You know, 25 years ago, it meant that you were in a supermax prison. Today, it means that you were unwise enough to buy a home automation system from the likes of Google or Apple. Right. I, I'm sorry, I'm laughing because it's true. Please continue. Oh, it's totally true. You know, I was just I was just writing something, uh, a talk that I'm going to give this week about um, what we thought in 1983. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of reflection about what people who were optimistic about technology had on their mind in the kind of early days of technology in the 80s and 90s. 
And, and you know, in 1983, if you were a, a kind of affluent middle class kid with a certain kind of forward looking parent, you might have had like an Apple II Plus or another early PC. And if you were someone who was optimistic about technology, you might have said someday we are going to give computers like this to all kids and they will all grow up with the fluency that allows them to alter or improve or uh, in some other way uh, understand or analyze the technology that governs their lives. And instead what happened was that although everyone did get a computer, those computers and the services they use are designed so that you absolutely cannot improve them. Even auditing them can give rise to civil and criminal liability. And, um, you know, your, your choice is take it or leave it. And sometimes you don't even get that choice, right? You can not use Facebook, but that doesn't stop other people from tagging you on Facebook. What you absolutely can't do is configure Facebook so that it's impossible to tag you. That's that's that if that feature ever exists, it'll be there because someone at Facebook decided to add it, not because you decided to add it. So, you know, it, it's I think a better predictor of the future of technology to look at what the poorest, least privileged and most disfavored people are expected to do with technology and imagine that everybody else is going to be similarly situated in a decade or two, then to go in the other direction, right? Then to say, you know, the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. And in that evenly distributed future, we will all get to tinker with all with our Apple II pluses. The future was there. It wasn't evenly distributed. And that future was a future of technological have nots who were under the thumb of the machine, but not permitted to change the machine. Um, now that's the that's kind of the animating fear that drives my work. But the hope that drives my work is the idea that although technology can be used as a horrific force of oppression, that on the one hand, we will only become more technologically mediated as time goes by. And on the other hand, the liberatory impulse that was felt both by the kids who had the Apple II Pluses in 1983 and the adults who watched them and in that moment had a vision for a world in which we could each of us seize the means of information and and be masters of our technological destiny rather than being mastered by technology that was imposed upon us. That vision is so powerful that it's too much to give up on, especially because in light of the fact that we will become inevitably more technologically mediated, to surrender the technology is to surrender all, right? That that although there are more important fights like the the uh, fight for for worth for black lives and the fight to avert the climate uh, emergency and the fight for basic human rights for transgender people and so on. And, and although each and every one of those fights is far more important than what technological regime we labor under, every one of those fights will be won or lost based on which technology we have available to us and how it works. That if 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 the other side gets to use all of the networks to coordinate their response to our uprising and all we have is wheat pasted handwritten posters on telephone poles, we have lost before the fight even started. And so for me, hope is not optional, right? Provided that there is some step that you can take that will take you from the place that you are now to a place where you will be marginally better situated then. You have to take that step because you never know what parts of the landscape are invisible to you from where you stand now 
and which parts will be revealed when you take that step. It may be that when you get to that higher ground, you will see a path heretofore hidden from you that takes you to still higher ground. And, and hope is very distinct from optimism. You know, optimism is this kind of fatalistic belief that things will just get better regardless of what we do. And, and hope is the belief that humans have agency, that provided that you still have energy in your legs to kick, that the fact that your ship has sunk doesn't mean that you have drowned, that you can still tread water and it may be that someone will come along and pick you up. Most people don't get picked up when their ship sinks in the open water, but everyone who was picked up treaded water until rescue arrived. And so that is what hope is. It's the necessary but insufficient precondition for a better future. And so when my work is about, on the one hand, the shitty technology adoption curve, and on the other hand, people resisting it and insisting on the right to be the masters of their technology, it is embodying both that fear and that hope. You know, the fear that that if we if we don't get it right, things will be really terrible. But on the other hand, that if we do get it right, things could be really great. Okay. I, I- I, I think we can cancel this podcast now because I think you just said it all right there. I, I was just going to say, I, I cede the rest of my time to the author from Burbank. <laughs> That's very nice of you. Also nice of you to call me from Burbank. I've only been here for five years, but I'm, I'm really in love with the town. I'm writing a novel set here now, and it's all set in my neighborhood. I started it before the lockdown, and a weird thing happened on the way to the pandemic, which is that instead of spending half of my days on the road and the other half of my days just nailed to my office chair catching up on my work i am now like actively just wandering around residential streets in my neighborhood and the fact that i'm spending about an hour a day in a utopian future in this neighborhood and about an hour a day walking around literally sniffing the roses on uh, you know hanging out over people's front fences has been a, a real spirit lifter for me. Yeah, that's okay. That sounds really nice. And that's sort of a touching anecdote about uh, the literary process for our pod. We're going to stow that one away. Um, I So first of all, I owe you an apology because I made it sound like we only wanted to hear about your book. And I'm glad that <laughs> you went, went broad with that answer. That's not what I meant. I was just kind of... No, 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 no. <laughs> to <laughs> be clear, worry. I think we're both really interested in talking about radicalized, um, especially Mask of the Red Death, which is the fourth. Should we call them novel- novellas or short stories? They're novellas. I know for the record that they didn't make it onto any of the novella ballots this year, but they are in fact novellas and I'm not bitter at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, boo to that because they should be on all the ballots because we, I mean, it's, it's a f- fantastic book. Um, can't recommend it enough. And especially Mask of the Red Death, which people had been recommending to me on Twitter um, for months, honestly, it's before superb. I read it. Herb. Oh, that's really nice of you. Thank you. Yeah. And I think I'm going to ask you a much sillier question um, along those lines. <laughs> Which is about, as I said, people in recommending Mask of the Red Death in particular to me, um, unfortunately, for obvious reasons. How sick are you of hearing about how timely that story is right now? (laughs) You know, I am accustomed to this uh, because it happened a lot with things like Little Brother uh, and, and to the people who think that Mask of the Red Death was prescient. And to the people who think that little brother was prescient, I'm on the one hand very grateful that my little parlor trick worked. But on the other hand, you know, I feel like I'm operating under a bit of a false pretense here because I wasn't writing about anything that I anticipated happening in the future. I was just writing about stuff that was going on right then. You know, we, we tend to think of the kind of action that happened in Little Brother, which is my, my 2008 novel about kids resisting mass surveillance after a terrorist attack. We think of that as being somehow connected to the Snowden leaks. And in fact, Snowden, you know, did take a copy of the sequel to Little Brother with him when he went on the run. 
But um, the actual proximate inspiration for that was a guy named Mark Klein, who had worked for AT&T all his life in San Francisco, who worked into the offices that I walked into the offices that I worked in after he retired, the Electronic Frontier Foundation offices, the old ones on Shotwell Street with a sheaf of papers. And he said, you know, I've just retired from AT&T. Uh, and I felt you should know that my boss made me build a secret room for the NSA so they could wiretap the whole Internet illegally. You know, it was on the front page of The New York Times. We we sued the government over it. Right. It was a big deal. But the news cycle comes at you fast and people had already forgotten it by 2008. You know, I was alive to it because we were we were litigating. But most other people had just it had just sailed past them. And, you know, in the same way, the. Both the insufficiency of preppers. So Mask of the Red Death is a novel about preppers, rich preppers who go into a, a hidey hole uh, when when things start to get bad in society on under the impression that if they have a bunker full of like thumb drives full of Bitcoin and gemstones and, you know, Krugerrands, that when the crisis ends, they can emerge with their AR-15s. And like live out an eternal Frazetta painting with a harem, if it, you know, <laughs> and and, you know, they're wrong. And it, like it's sort of it, on the one hand, like it was obvious that preppers were insufficient. And on the other hand, it was obvious that the most important questions about any intense civilizational challenge that we faced were epidemiological. They're public health questions that, you know, a, a, anyone who knows about World War One. Like right now, we're all like, oh, God, Spanish flu. Well, you know, the the supercharged Spanish flu moment, the, the second wave was in part driven by people returning from the trenches where the leading cause of death wasn't mustard gas or mortar shells or, or rifle bullets. It was it was infectious disease. And it is it has ever been thus right that that um, we are in the. um deprived of our technology and the continuity of our technology, we face sanitation crises that precipitate public health crises that it's been, it's been most of the span of behavioral modern humans. uh, We were not, we have not been able to function without the kind of society that can manage sanitation without being wiped out by public health crises. And so preppers, you know, they, they have this idea when you look into their fantasies about, about, what they're preparing for, they have this idea that whatever crisis comes, it'll be a crisis that is suited to their needs. They have a kind of novelistic approach to to um, prepping, right? That if in scene one, you see someone who's a water chemist getting ready for the end of the world, by scene two and a half, you should be pretty certain that the world will be in a crisis of water quality. Maybe the terrorists will have poisoned the water supply. And so if you are thinking you're the protagonist of your novel and you're really good at water chemistry, you overweight the possibility that terrorists will will poison the water supply, not because there's any objective criteria to think that they will poison the water supply, but it would be really cool for you if they did. Right. You wouldn't be the guy sitting around with his thumb up his ass waiting for someone else to rescue him. You'd be the rescuer. And, you know. When you think about the prepper, the modern prepper movement, which includes at its top end all of these finance guys, right, all these hedge fund and private equity raiders, you have to ask yourself, what crisis do they imagine they might live through in which the skills of someone who does leverage takeovers will be the most important skills to to weather the storm? 
And they really are the most outrageous fantasies, the least plausible, most outrageous fantasies that these guys live out as they buy their luxury bunkers in New Zealand and kit them out with, you know, fancy MREs. You know, there, there is no future like they are the telephone sanitizers of the <laughs> B-Arc. That's right? a great reference. Yeah. <laughs> And so, you know, and then you add to that the prepper's propensity for filling the bunker with guns. And when you when you contemplate the certainty that any big civilizational challenge will be mostly about sanitation and public health, you have to ask yourself, who are these guys going to shoot? Like, how good a marksman do you have to be to shoot the germs? You know, they should be investing in toilet brushes, not guns. So I have a. I've got a related question I'd like to plug in here that's that's you know, we haven't really talked about it in advance, but have you ever gone out and checked out like the survivalist and prepper videos on YouTube? It is a it's this fascinating mutual aid society where people are showing each other how to assemble bandsaws and the best way to build a compost bin in case of nuclear attack. I mean, it's all LARPing, but like they're genuinely trying to help each other in a way that goes against the whole point of what they're doing. And I've been trying to figure it out for years. Well, you know, like on the one hand, I get that, right? Because I'm I'm part of the, you know, OG maker movement guy. And I, I get the the agency and the thrill of knowing how stuff works and being able to 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 um, fix the things in your life, to configure the things in your life. You know that going back to the those those kids who didn't have Apple II pluses, you know, the dream was that someday they'd be able to grow up and they would get their STEM education and they would be able to sit at the machine that had been designed without their needs in mind. And they would be able to retool it so that it worked to their needs in the way that, you know, I'm, I'm actually sitting here at my desk in Burbank and I have a, a 10,000 year old stone axe head in my hands that I bought at the Evolution store in New York. And, you know, somebody made this axe head to suit their hand, right, to do what they they needed it to do and not what someone else needed it to do. And there is something about that impetus that is you know, very understandable and very noble. And just as with conspiracists, I think that preppers are like actually redeemable in the sense that they're they're halfway there. You know, we, we tend to think of conspiracists as being lazy, right, as being uh, people who didn't bother to get the facts. And, and when you actually delve into conspiracism, which is another thing that you can watch a lot of YouTube videos about, yeah. what you find is people who are unbelievably expert at nonsense, right? I mean, you know, committed astrologers have memorized a lot of wrong facts about the universe, right? Con- committed anti-vaxxers have memorized and absorbed a lot of wrong praxis about biology and virology, right? And and they they do, like, I understand where anti-vaxxers are coming from. They're, they're coming from a world in which, like, the FDA let a family of evil billionaires, the Sacklers, market a dangerous opioid that killed more Americans than the Vietnam War, right? Like, why would you trust an agency that says we neutrally adjudicate claims about the safety of pharmaceuticals and you can trust us when they've, when they've, you know, abetted a family that went on a murder spree that lasted a decade and made them richer than the Rockefellers and for which they've never really paid the price. So I get all of that. And, and I think that like, if we are to kind of do the truth and reconciliation thing with our conspiracists and our preppers and so on, One of the things we have to acknowledge is that it is super great for people to be good at fixing the stuff around them and making it work and committed to teaching other people to do it. And it is super great 
to be skeptical and to be into doing research and to understanding the underlying phenomena and the causes and to and to look askance at the motives that underpin allegedly objective processes and ask yourself whether they are genuinely objective or whether they have cloaked themselves in empirical face wash. Right. You know, I, I the the. I have a lot of time for people who think that predictive policing systems just recycle racism uh, with math and make it look like it's neutral. That critique is not all that different from the critique that says, well, sure, they want you to believe the world is flat. If they if you knew the truth, they would uh, then you'd be as powerful as they are. I mean, they're wrong, but the thinking that you should understand motives that you should look critically that you should seek to independently validate claims that uh institutions are corruptible and should and we should be vigilant for corruption within our institutions all that stuff's really good yeah that's actually probably one of the well that might be the single best exegesis of conspiracy thought i've heard that was great oh that's kind of you thank you <laughs> i've just uh, i've just sold a, a book uh, I don't know when this is coming out, if we can announce it yet, but I've just sold a book to a publisher. I won't say who uh, that is uh, a rebuttal to Shoshana Zuboff's um, uh, surveillance capitalism book, which basically says that conspiracism is the result of of machine learning being so good that it can make people believe things that aren't true. And and my rebuttal is uh, conspiracism is the result of people losing faith in institutions and no longer being able to trust truth. And so they just trust people instead. And, and that process leads them astray. Well, first of all, that sounds, I mean, again, super exciting hypothesis. I'm glad that you, glad that you announced that on our podcast. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm into it. And I mean, I think Pete and I are definitely both going to grab that. I, uh, I do have to just do a one-liner, I'm afraid, because I, I, I won't ask this question because you kind of already answered it, but um, I'm really interested in everyone's eschatological theories of history, as in their apocalyptic theories of history and how they get narrative and meaning from that. You already addressed that. I do like that you answer the eschatological theory of history with a scatological theory of history, though. <laughs> <laughs> Forgive That's me, I had to do that. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah the, the eschaton. Immanentize the, the eschaton. The eschaton. Oh God, that's great. <laughs> that's fair. Yeah. Well, we we've touched on uh, on Hitchhiker's Guide. We've gone Illuminati in this one. We are all over the place. We're all over the map. I, I have a very literary question for you about the way that sure. Mask of the Red Death is written. Um, I re- I appreciated how it did something that I think is quite difficult to do, especially in an era when satire feels you know, obliterated or at least very much weakened as a genre that one can do. Um, I read it at least as you having a lot of contempt for these characters who I think of as contemptible people. And you did a pretty deadpan. It's third person, but it's pretty close to the characters, especially to Martin, who's the leader of uh, Fort Doom. Um, You know, I mean, I'm interested in that just because like so much of what you're pushed towards now in publishing circles and literary circles is like, you must love your characters and make other people love them. Um, so how did you, did you, did you have fun doing quite the opposite? Yeah, I think so. You know, uh, like it's, it's not really satire. There is a whole like kind of law and econ Chicago school of economics type, uh, world that, you know, you can go and you can look up the papers where they say things like, um, pollution is good for black people because it keeps white people from gentrifying their neighborhoods. And so they can afford their houses. Right. 
I mean, there, there, there are people who, you know, I think he was a noblest who, although the, I point out that the uh, Nobel Prize in economics is not actually a Nobel Prize, like economists felt sad that real scientists got an actual award. And so they found someone else called Nobel to give them an award. <laughs> uh, no, seriously. Uh, but, but, but there's a, I think he was a noblest who said that, uh, like, offshoring that that like offshoring pollution was a way for poor countries to lift themselves out of poverty by subjecting themselves and their children to like being poisoned by e-waste and that moreover um because the pleasure of life in a in a rich country was so much better especially as you age than it was in a poor country with poor medicine that the actual human cost of poisoning people to death in poor countries was objectively less than the human cost of poisoning people to death in rich countries, right? That, that like the value of a year of life when you live in a, in a leafy suburb in the global north at the age of 70 is so much better than being a beggar on the streets of Kerala that you know, we should just send our pollution there. It's just like from a kind of Pareto optimal, like, are you, are you making, you know, are you getting more value for society than you are losing in this transaction? Um, it's, it's, it's better to kill the sad person than the happy person. And since rich people are happy, kill the poor. Like those are not like made up arguments. Those are like real papers that get published in journals, you know? And so, I'm uh, it's it's not satire to have a guy who's going like, well, you know, if, if if someone comes along and figures out how to trick you out of your uh, house that you bought when your neighborhood was a poor neighborhood and it's now become an up and coming neighborhood with its own, you know, mustache wax boutique and so on, then then, um, you know, all that's happening is the market is working because that person knows how to turn your house into an investment that will grow. Whereas all you know how to do is live in it. And markets are supposed to allocate capital to people who can produce growth, which is how we create shared prosperity. And so it is like to the public good that, you know, robo signers steal people's houses out from under them after the 2008 crisis, that this is like working as intended. Yeah. I mean, I've, <laughs> I have had the misfortune of meeting some of those people. So I, I get you. And I, you know, there's I, a lot I of them at science fiction conventions, dude. I mean. Yeah. Oof. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, honestly, Pete and I have not delved too much into contemporary right wing science fiction. We've kind of nipped around the edges. But one of these days we're going to have to take it head on. I mean, oh, I there's going to be a Ringo episode. I'll tell you that for free. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> I mean, all just, I know about okay. him, I've never read his work. I met him at a con once and his dad was apparently the initial soil engineer for Disney World, which is pretty cool. I don't know much else. About oh, him. yeah. Um, he, he did. He did do a book about um, uh, fighting off an alien uh, race where one of the solutions was to scoop up all the old Nazis in Germany, inject them with a youth drug, and then put them in tanks. <laughs> oh my God, this stupid, it burns. <laughs> <laughs> just just dropping that load out there. Uh, I, I'm breaking my own rule because, like, people love the book good enough. Uh, but... yep. 
Um, I did want to talk to you about your influences. And in some ways, this feels kind of boring because the coolest thing about your writing is you're definitely going in your own direction and it feels fresh. But every author we've talked to has definitely said, I'm... I'm standing on the foundations of this guy and and that lady. Like often it's like Zelazny or Le Guin. Are there people that you look at in science fiction or elsewhere where you're like that writing played a role in putting me on the path I'm at right now? Well, I think we can divide it into t- into two tranches, right? So one is the writers who personally influenced me because I, I grew up in Toronto, which which was a city full of writers who are very accessible. Mm-hmm. And then there's which work influenced me. But but it's really a, uh, the intersection of both. And we were we were talking about Peter Watts before the call started. You know, I was for years in a workshop with Peter that was founded by Judith Merrill, who was one of my mentors. And and Judy, you know, she um, abandoned the U.S. after the Chicago police riots in 68, decided that she couldn't in good conscience raise her kids there. And she t- she I think she'd already divorced Fred Pohl at that point. And she took their their children and moved to Toronto with uh, all of their books, which she donated to the Toronto Public Library System. And they started a library that was then called the Spaced Out Library. When, when Judy died, they named it after. She wouldn't let them name it after while she was alive. But it's now called the Merrill Collection. It's the largest science fiction reference library in the world, publicly owned science fiction reference library in the world. And Judy was the writer in residence. Like when I was a kid, like when I was like 10 years old, we took a school trip down there and she was like, come back with your manuscripts. I'll critique them for you. Right. Judith Merrill would critique your manuscripts. But as it turned out, I actually already knew about Judy by the time I was 10 because she used to host Doctor Who on our local science fiction, (laughs) on our local public broadcaster. She had this gig where she would show up uh, every week before the episode and like while chain smoking, because that was Judy, explain where these tropes came from and be like, you know, one day in the Futurian house, Isaac Asimov was pantsing Bradbury. And that's when we came up with this idea, you know, and um, and it was it was, ama- you know, it was like slappy squirrel recounting the dark history, the deep history of science fiction. It was it was superb. And so I already knew her work because I used to watch Doctor Who with my dad when when my mom was off at teacher's college in the evening. And then um, on top of that, Judy ran these um, nights, uh, these potluck nights for uh, science fiction people in Toronto called the Hydra Nights that were based on these these nights that they used to do at the Futurian House in New York, where every eight weeks or so, a different person would host a potluck dinner and all of the writers and editors, critics, um, illustrators, filmmakers, uh, librarians and archivists and scholars who studied the field would all gather and kind of trade notes. So, you know, as a like a punk kid, I started selling stories when I was 17. I was going to these these potluck dinners, I was hanging out with these writers. I was in a workshop with Carl Schrader and uh, that that Peter later joined that a bunch of other great writers have gone through that that Judy started. I was getting my manuscripts critiqued by Judy and we had what is still the oldest science fiction bookstore in the world, Baca Books. Where when I was a kid, I went in uh, for the first time again on a school trip and Tanya Huff was behind the counter. She hadn't yet sold her first story. And she asked me what kind of books I liked. And she took me back to the used section and she found me a one dollar copy of uh, uh, H. Beam Piper's Little Fuzzy. It was the first book I ever bought with my own money. And uh, she also used to critique my manuscripts. And when she quit to write full time, move out to the countryside with her girlfriend and write full time, I got her job. 
So I worked in that bookstore, right, with Nalo Hopkinson and a bunch of other writers who'd worked there. So it was a real writer's town. And all of that stuff, as much as the books I read, made me a writer because I had this this community around me that was helping me be better at writing and encouraging me and exposing me to books and ideas. That said, I read an awful lot as a kid. I, I lived in a deep suburb and getting in and out of town required lots and lots of public transit time. And so I got really into like wearing cargo pants that I could fit a paperback and on each thigh. And I always had a book with me and I read like a book a day. Uh, the first book I ever read to myself was Alice in Wonderland. And uh, Lewis Carroll remains a huge influence on me. I married a woman called Alice. It's not a coincidence. <laughs> uh, I, I was hugely influenced by Heinlein and the Heinlein juveniles. And I like to think of... Uh, uh, little brother as like a uh, uh, kind of lefty Heinlein. Like if Heinlein had never stopped campaigning for Upton Sinclair. Um, who else? Uh, Daniel Pinkwater when I was a kid was just massively influential on me. And I'm reading, he's still working. I'm reading his new one, Adventures of a Dorgish Girl. And it's so good. I'm reading it to my 12 year old. And those are books. He, he got really pissed off at me on Twitter the other day. So I have to be careful here. But there are books that like help weird kids feel great. And he's like, they're not about being weird at all. And I'm like, Daniel, they're so about being weird. But okay. <laughs> You know, this is like Bradbury insisting that Fahrenheit 451 had nothing to do with censorship and that it was a book about the evils of television. Like, <laughs> okay, if you say so, whatever. Bradbury, Dandelion Wine was my favorite book for 10 years. I read it like a million times. Um, Stephen Bruce, I started reading him when I was 12 years old and never stopped. He's still working. He's got like, I think, two books left to go in this series he started when I was 12. Oh, we interviewed we had him on the show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's, he's brilliant. Yeah. Um, and Tanya Huff, as I said, and Judy, uh, Phyllis Gottlieb, who was another one of those writers who was a mentor of mine when I was a kid. Um, and then there are the writers who taught me at Clarion, who who really meant so much to me. Uh, uh, James Patrick Kelly and, um, uh, and Nancy Kress and uh, Lisa Goldstein. And, and, you know, Harlan Ellison was hugely influential on me. And, and some of that influence was negative, right? Some of that influence sure. was like figuring out what I didn't want to do. You know, there's, there's a bit of a, like, if you're not a Harlan fan, when you're 17, you have no soul. If you're still, if you still can't see the flaws in him by the time you're 27, you have no brains. Um, and <laughs> you know, he was the handily the worst teacher we had at Clarion. He was actually barred from teaching Clarion ever again after uh, he taught our year and they fired the director over what, over the way he taught over not intervening. He was, he was, um, was he abusive he was, or something? Yeah. That's... He was super abusive. He, he, <sighs> he did a thing that apparently he's done many times, which is he picked an angel and he picked a goat and he took the angel and he, he wreathed her in praises and he took the goat and he spent literally six hours critiquing her work. And he, he, by instinct or chance had, uh, unerringly picked the person who was most insecure about their work to begin with. And that person stopped writing after the workshop. So you know, it was really, um, it was very Jesus. shameful. Uh, Octavia Butler and, and Kathy Koja. Kathy Koja's work, God, when I first encountered it, just like that, that kind of splatterpunk 90s Gen X-y stuff. And then as I watched her progress as a writer, like one of the reasons I'm a YA writer is I watched her progress from being this very Baroque, very lavish splatterpunk writer uh, to being this incredibly stripped down, almost Hemingway-esque YA writer who wrote these very understated YA books. And now she's writing like queer Weimar 
puppet novels that are like <laughs> beyond description and alternate histories of Christopher Marlowe and like just just the most amazing. So she's really uh, just beyond wonderful. Um, Stephen Boyett's book, Ariel, was the book every kid in my school read when we were all 12 and we all fantasized about it. Uh, there's so many. I mean, I was a book a day kid. And then like memoir and biography, I just reread the autobiography of, of Abby Hoffman. And, and as I was reading it, realized, oh my God, this book was so influential on me when, when I was a kid. Oh, and Holmes, I was a giant Sherlockian. And I actually, um, when, when Les Klinger won the lawsuit that put Sherlock in the public domain, he edited an anthology of of um, unauthorized Sherlock stories. It was the first ever anthology of unauthorized Sherlock stories because it came after this lawsuit. And he asked me if I'd write a story for it. And I got the invite the same day that Laura Poitras, who was the, the documentarian who made the Snowden documentary that won the Academy Award, asked me if I would write something for her catalog at her, for her show at the Whitney. And so, and if I wanted to work with the Snowden leaks to do it, to go to her, her air gap room in New York and work with the raw leaks. And so I, I wrote them both one story. I wrote them a Sherlock story about a Snowden leak called Sherlock Holmes and the Adventure of the Extraordinary Rendition. And, uh, (laughs) you know, it was amazing. It was so cool. What a, what a, what a wonderful day that was. And then, you know, the gunslinger books, I, I mean, I can, a lot of King is hit or miss, but the gunslinger books right up to the very last one, uh, is, is beyond marvelous. And then, you know, my not so dirty, not so secret is that every single night I fall asleep listening to Terry Pratchett audiobooks, uh, like every night. I, there, there's enough of them to do what a night for the rest of your life, certainly. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so, you know, I could do this all day and all night and all day and all night. But, you know, that is like a that's, I guess, a cross section. That, that that was a wonderful answer. And there were all sorts of little points of connection, like um, uh, like I, I, you're the you're the third author from Toronto that we've interviewed in the last five months. And that just Who struck the third. Me. Uh, me, you, me, Peter, and uh, James Allen Gardner. Oh, Jim Gardner! What a lovely thing. His last book was a hoot. Yes, yeah, I yeah. love that new series, The Dark. All those explosions were someone else's fault. Yes, or has he had another one since? Um, yeah, what a great book. Just came out with the new one, whose name escapes me, but it's the okay. sequel. Great, great. Yeah, he's wonderful. I'm gonna out my co-host a little bit here and say that. Uh, you're both for for long stretches of your life. You've both been book a day, guys. Uh, that's one of Pete's superpowers oh. in my mind. I can't read that fast, but <laughs> well, well, I can't anymore. I try to, but yeah, I, I, at best, it's a book every other week or so. I used to back before the lockdown swim for an hour every day. We live across the street from a public. Excuse me. We live across the street from a public Olympic sized pool, and I have an underwater MP3 player. And I would put an audiobook on, and I would get through two novels a month that way, and then two novels a month on paper. And so I was doing a book a week, but, you know, it's really slowed down. I, I, outing myself as, as an aging person, which I guess technically is everyone, but... That's true. Uh, I am I am slowing down from the book a day, and the reason is my eyes aren't as good, and it's driving uh, me bananas. Uh, yeah, I think there's a special place in hell for people who set PDFs in gray on white type. Ugh! Uh, you know, it's one thing to do with a web page that at least I can change with a plugin. But like, seriously, if you do that, fuck you entirely. <laughs> yeah, it's, well, I'm often it's like I'm holding a magnesium flare above paperbacks now just to make it bright enough. <laughs> yeah. In my day, we had, we had Wired magazine and it had silver type on a purple background. and We liked it. 
shall shall we go back to the story? Um, sure. Okay. Uh, uh, Connor, it's your turn. I'm jumping the gun. You know, honestly, those were I got through my planned questions. Um, I am. I do want to go back a little bit, though. We talked a lot about whether this was satire, and you you said it's not, which like totally with you. The satire thing was kind of an adjunct to, I think, um, what I find most interesting, which is just like, I haven't read enough of your work, I'll confess, to know how often you do this. But I mean, do you have any... This interview is over. <laughs> I, I've read enough for him, okay? Oh, all right. Pete and, several, Pete and several of our core listeners have read a lot of your work, and I'm going to read more, I promise. Um, okay. But I guess my my interest in this case is, uh, you know, what is it like to write characters that you find contemptible for an entire novella or beyond? I mean, I don't know how often you do it, I guess is the point. But I find that very interesting because like so much of what's been drilled into me um, through formal workshops and elsewhere as I try to get my publishing career underway is all about like <laughs> the most it's like you must love your characters and you must get the reader to love your characters. And that is the single most important thing. I mean, I'm, I'm caricaturing it a little bit, but you see what I'm saying. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. You know, I think that, like, it would be hard to keep up for a trilogy. But, you know, a novella is not that long. Um, I I actually uh, just wrote, uh, or didn't just write, I'm about to publish the third Little Brother book, which is called Attack Surface. And it's told from the point of view of someone who's a kind of ambiguous villain in the first two books, this young woman called Masha. So Little Brother is about a, a kids who go to war against the Department of Homeland Security to liberate themselves from, from mass surveillance. And their foil is this young woman, Masha, who is herself uh, another sort of smart computer kid, but she goes to work for the Department of Homeland Security to catch these other kids. And um, it, it, it's a long-ass book. Attack Surface is actually 170,000 words in the first draft. It's down to a little under 130,000 words in the final draft. <laughs> but I spent a, you know, a long time with someone who had very different values to mine and actually really got inside her head enough that I figured out why she didn't like the protagonist of the first two books. I actually, like, it gave me a real appreciation for what his flaws were. Um, and, you know, her her whole thing is like, yeah, I know I'm doing the wrong thing, but I know I'm doing the wrong thing. He thinks he's doing the right thing, even though he's also doing the wrong thing. And that it is better to, you know, confront with a with clear eyes your own moral failings than to paper them over and insist that you are a moral actor despite all of the immorality of your action. Yeah, hmm. I can. I mean, I can. I just as a little bit of background on what I'm working on. Uh, I think all the characters in what I'm working on have serious deficiencies of that kind, and a lot of it for them is kind of the struggle to get to the surface and be like, "All right, I've broken the surface. Now I can see and I understand all the things that I did wrong, and here's my justification for them." So mm-hmm. and that sounds. I'm with you, and that sounds really um, exciting. It sounds like one I'm gonna another one I'm gonna have to read. We're adding to our list a lot here. Uh, <laughs> well, and it's not, you know, it's not that pat thing that um, everyone is, no one is the villain of their own story. Some people are the villains of their own story, but being the villain doesn't mean that you haven't found a way to justify it. It just might mean that you assume that everyone else is as much of a villain as you are. Yeah. I see that a lot on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, you see it a lot in the kind of the, the grifter neoliberal world, right? Like if I didn't do it, someone else would. 100%. So, yeah. Let's talk about the noble science economics. Um, right. 
Sorry. I think you mean uh, that dismal. Thing, <laughs> yes, I got yes. it. Yes. Uh, so, um, I... Well, I mean, like like anything, when you approach a book, the, the paradigms you're walking in, in with create your view of what you're reading on some level. So I I don't think that as a writer, you're like, I'm going to play with a series of economic systems. Rather, you're you're playing with the technology, you're playing, extrapolating where things would go and sort of by necessity, different economic systems are cropping up. Um I- Am I right? It's a little of both. It, it's, um, you know, I, I, the, I say that because the, the utopian novel I'm working on now, the one set in Burbank, mm-hmm. was very explicitly inspired by some economic reading I did on a subject called modern monetary theory, MMT, which is the idea that, um, that the best way to think about economics is as a series of accounting flows. So economists have this kind of pretense that like, the government taxes our money and then spends it on programs. But when you start to think of it as accounting flows, it's pretty obvious that that just can't be right because the money starts with the government, right? Like people don't have money until the government spends it because there's only one place that money can come from, right? It it comes from the, the printing press at the treasury or, you know, these days the keyboard at the treasury, not you, you, it doesn't exist in a state of nature. And so it follows from that, that governments don't need our money to, to fund programs. And when you think about it, it's like, yeah, of course they don't need money to fund programs. Th- they can, they can print as much money as they need to buy anything for sale on the currency that they print, right? The, there's no way a government can like default on its debt. This idea that governments will be paying the debts for a hundred years or whatever, you know, your grandchildren will pay for the coronavirus bailout. It's just not true, right? It's not true. And it, and it can't be true because it's, it's not true in the same way that like, Apple doesn't go into debt when it issues an iTunes gift card, right? That, that like, yes, they, someone might redeem that gift card later for an iTunes, but, but Apple doesn't, doesn't have to wait until you give back an iTunes gift card before it can issue a new one, right? It doesn't pile up all the redeemed gift cards and, and, and put them out again, right? They're just integers, And so that's all money is, is integers. And so governments are not constrained by money, but they are constrained by resources. If you try to buy things that aren't for sale or more of the thing than is for sale, or if you start a bidding war with people in the private sector who are trying to procure the same thing you are, then the price goes up. And that is inflationary. But like, say just, you know, as a kind of wild example of something that could never happen, that 30% of people were structurally unemployed for the next decade because of the pandemic. Just as a just as a random example, yeah, hypothetically, right? sure. Another way of saying that is we have a, a, a non-bankable resource, which is human labor, that the private sector does not wish to procure at any price. Right. That we you know, the fight for 15 is all well and good, but the true price, a uh, minimum price of labor is zero. That's how much you get if no one in the private sector wants to buy your labor. Right. So right now, the private sector's bid for that labor is zero dollars an hour. The public sector could simply pay all of those people a living wage to do work that needs doing like resilience work against the next pandemic. And there would be no inflationary pressure. And all we would do is free people from the enduring crippling legacy of, of, of long-term unemployment where, which comes with, uh, which brings with it, uh, familial intergenerational problems, also health problems, mental health problems. Uh, it, it contributes to blight in neighborhoods. It slows down the whole economy and so on. 
So, you know, that idea for me that that governments are not monetarily constrained, that they are uh, that they are constrained by the resources available for sale in their currency was was just transformative because, it, you know, it has all these implications for things like imports and exports. Right. Like we, we think of being an importer as being a problem. But but what you can actually think of importing as is some other country was dumb enough to send you some of the things that are for sale in their currency. Right now it's now it's for sale in your currency, right? A thing that was not otherwise available for sale in your currency is now among the things that your state, which is to say your the the thing that represents your collective will as a as a demos can procure. Right. Being a net importer is just like it just means you're getting other people's stuff. Right. Like that is that is a wonderful thing to have. Right. This this that kind of balance of trade. And and so I'm I'm writing this book that kind of uh, posits a, a, a post Green New Deal utopia where the only people who are unhappy with the fact that they're living in a world where for the first time in 100 years you don't fear the future are like white nationalist militias who've watched too much Fox News and are terrified about deficits and think that they are like living in a living on borrowed time because someday someone is going to try and cash in the debts that the government has accrued doing necessary work, like moving every coastal city in the country, 20 kilometers inland. Yeah. So I am unbelievably here for that just because <laughs> again, you have, you know, like I, I like that you're writing like free books right now that are hitting on like different major interests of mine. This is uh this could be the beginning of a long uh, reading relationship, Corey. Um, <laughs> oh, well, good. But I mean, that's, that sounds incredible. And I, I think MMT is very interesting as well. Um, I've, yeah, I strongly recommend it. Uh, Stephanie Kelton, who's the like the foremost economist of it in the U.S. at least, has a new book out called The Deficit Myth that just came out last week as we record. And then next week, uh, another economist, Pavlina Cherneva, has a, a pamphlet coming out called The Case for the Jobs Guarantee, uh, which I interviewed her for and reviewed for the L.A. Times uh, and we'll be publishing it next week. And she it's it's a tremendous book about this idea. Awesome. Um, and more good Rex. I think people have gotten like uh, a couple of years worth of reading Rex out of this one episode, yeah. which is yeah. great. It's what we're here for. Um, I, I'd like to ask you something silly if that's all right. Okay. Okay. Sure. So you co-wrote a book with Charles Strauss uh, called the rapture of the nerds. Uh huh. And in it, there was a biological alteration that happened to the main character in which his throat sort of like, Unclathrated and recathrated and acted as sort of a a whistle, and that yeah. that is a body horror moment that has haunted me for more than a decade. Whose idea was that? Pretty sure that one was Charlie. Although I try to be gross too sometimes. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, we wrote the fir- that's all that's in the first third, as I recall. That that book was three novellas stitched together, and. Um, Charlie had already written the first, I forget how many words, like 700 words or 1,000 words or something, and he wrote to me and asked if I wanted to work on it with him, and he would send it to me, and I would write 500 words, and I would send it to him, and he would add 500 words, and we'd rewrite what the last one had written, that that kind of back-and-forth ping-pong. If you if you ever see the first edition of the second part of that book, uh, you will see that there is a long section that's not in the final book but it was in the novella as it was published in which the main character literally for 500 words runs in one direction changes his mind and runs 500 words in the other direction (laughs) and this was because over and over again because charlie and i could not agree on what he should be doing next (laughs) (laughs) oh god i love it 
<laughs> Incidentally, that that character Hugh, he is um, uh, based uh, more or less explicitly on Rincewind from the uh, Pratchett books from the Discworld. Books. Oh, that's even better. Like, I actually, I need to go back, maybe not, maybe skip a couple of pages that I don't want to revisit, but the rest of it, like, looking at it through this, this is a, a rinse wind homage. I, I've got to check that out. <laughs> For sure. So I have a question um, that kind of builds on a lot of things we've talked about. I mean, how do you, what do you see as kind of the political or kind of social activation role, if there is one, for fiction. Um, obviously, you must have thought about this because you do a lot of activism and you write a lot of fiction. Uh, you know, I, I'm just always curious about how people conceptualize what fiction is doing in the world substantively. Well, I think it gives us um, shortcuts for uh, understanding how to react to different situations and metaphors for framing them. Uh, and that is both a source of, of good and a source of ill. So it's it's unequivocal in the sociological literature that crises are generally when people rise to the occasion and are at their best. Right. That crisis is when you you um, go to your neighbor's aid. It's not when you loot your neighbor's house. And um, yet there is a long tradition in fiction. I, I think I, I always trace it to the pulp origins of science fiction where, you know, Pulp Fiction wants to be very plot forward. And if you if you can get more plottiness, then you should take it. And the two basic plots, man versus man and man versus nature, can be usefully combined in the disaster novel as a man versus nature versus man book where, like, the tsunami knocks your house down, your neighbor comes over and eats you. And uh, I think that that story, that cliche, that kind of Walking Dead tale has given us uh, an easily available heuristic for understanding what happens in crisis, which is that crisis is when you can't trust your neighbor. And I think from a like a game theoretical perspective, if you know that your neighbor doesn't trust you, then you shouldn't trust them. And in Walkaway, I call this the covered dish problem. Like when the crisis strikes, do you go over to your neighbor's house with a shotgun or a covered dish? And it really depends on what, whether you think your neighbor is going to greet you with a shotgun or a covered dish. And uh, the only way to defuse it is to just never bring a shotgun, because if you both bring a shotgun, then you're both dead. If you bring a shotgun, there's the chance that they'll put their shotgun down and get their covered dish and that you can have a potluck. And uh, and so I think that that is one of the main roles that fiction can play is to give us a thing that's ready to hand to grab onto to understand um, times of crisis, extremis uh, um, of, of change. I also think that it's it's a way for us to um, try and put ourselves in other people's shoes. You know, it's a pretty common observation, but I think it is maybe the weirdest thing about fiction that we have involuntary uh, uh, empathic responses to the plights of people whom we know to be fictional. Right. Which is to say the plights of people whose plights we know to have no consequences, right? like imaginary people's lives don't matter. Uh, and, and the most you know, brutal death of literature, you know, the death of Romeo and Juliet is less consequential than the death of the yogurt you ate with breakfast this morning because that was actually alive and now it's actually dead. And Romeo and Juliet were never alive. And yet you tear up when you see Romeo and Juliet die. And the fact that that literature has it within its power to make you feel involuntary limbic responses to things that you know to have no consequence like an optical illusion for your emotions 
seems to maybe train a, an impulse in us to to try and get inside the heads of other people to try and unwind their motivations. I mean, there is a sense in which all fiction is science fiction or at least fantasy because all fiction has the pretense that you can know what another person is thinking and no one in the history of the entire human race has ever known what anyone else was thinking. And so that, that, you know, telepathic pretense is, uh, uh, you know, universal to all fiction. And yet it is itself like the weirdest part of all fiction. Wow. That's again, a really great answer. I'll be turning over for a while. Um, I think one of our, uh, esteemed listeners who's also a writer carlo likes to say that fantasy is the only genre kind of in accordance with what you were saying um yeah sure because the impulses we ascribe to fantasy are sort of like the ones that 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 uh whether we admit it or not come out elsewhere but yeah that was there's a lot to unpack there um we yeah. also talk a lot about uh the the pulp roots of of science fiction so it, it that that was a nice little unintentional plug in there to the things we babble about all the time so it's much appreciated Corey. <laughs> oh well thank you um i'm honestly out of questions this has been there's just a lot well it's just a lot to think about you know <laughs> i honestly i don't want to ruin this interview at this point i i <laughs> i'm thrilled with where it's gone uh cory if you're ever interested in uh like talking about one of your works or coming back here and talking about anything, your grocery list, we would love to have you back. Oh, that's very nice. Well, you know, I haven't told you guys about this uh, amazing thing that I'm into Scientology. We could talk about. No, I'm just <laughs> That's have, you, have you ever uh, have you ever have you ever read any good Seventh Day Adventist literature? I have some really amazing stuff here that we could. Uh, yeah, no, I'd I'd love to. I, you know, I've got this this book out in October. Um, uh, you know, Attack Surface, the Third Little Brother book. Maybe maybe we can plan something for then. If yeah, time, that'd be fantastic. If you have yeah. time, we would love to have you back on for that. Truly. Well, a lot depends on whether or not there's uh, book tours then. But if there aren't, or internet, uh, sure, <laughs> or the internet, that too. Well, thank you so much, Corey. Honestly, this has been great. I can say without reservation that it's one of our best episodes ever. Um, really, it's been a pleasure. Oh well, thank you. And yeah, let's uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll reach out as we get closer to October. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much. I I, I hope we do get a chance to talk then. And and you know, take care of yourself, guys. Stay safe. Fuck Trump. <laughs> you got it. Absolutely. Yes to all of that. Take care of yourself. And thank you. And thanks, everybody. 